This is the Nietzsche Podcast. Today, I want to talk to you about the conclusion of Zarathustra's saga, the end of Nietzsche's saga of his great prophet of eternal return and the overman, which we find in the final chapter of the final book of The Spoke Zarathustra, entitled The Sign, where Zarathustra says, quote, The hour has come. This is my morning. My day is breaking. Rise now, rise, thou great noon. End quote. That's not the first time that Zarathustra invokes the imagery of noon. Uh, the idea of a great noontide is a metaphor utilized throughout the entire story. It appears all the way from the very beginning at the prologue. But what does noon symbolize exactly? Zarathustra heralds noon here as symbolizing a very significant event, one which is still to come and represents, in some sense, the moment we might all be looking forward to. Perhaps it's our own Nietzschean eschaton. Noon is when the sun is highest in the sky, and so it's a high moment in the full illumination of the light of self-knowledge. Noon is also when the sun is midway on its course from one horizon to the next, meaning that it's a halfway mark. And so, Zarathustra more or less ends the story by calling forth this great noon, asking for it to break upon him. And what is noon? It's a high moment, a moment straight smack dab in the middle. Zarathustra's hair has turned white at this point in the story. He's had a long life of solitude, alternating with periods of teaching among the people and gathering disciples. And he's done and seen all these great things. He's traveled to the Isles of the Blessed, which is a famous, uh, you know, mythical continent known even by the Greek philosophers. Uh, later, he meets with those who have adopted his ideas and done so badly, such as Zarathustra's ape or the many characters in book four. And uh, he's also had visions. He's uh, effectively died and been reborn in the passage, the convalescent. He's defeated the spirit of gravity and he's brought mankind his highest wisdom, um, that of the eternal recurrence, which is also his most dreadful thought, but <clears throat> we've talked about all of that in the eternal recurrence episodes. And that, remember, at the very beginning of the story, Zarathustra's great need is to give, that he's so overfull with his wisdom and he wants to give it to the world, and so he's now done that. And um, now he's not a character with perfect knowledge or perfect wisdom from the very beginning. And what's interesting is that in addition to sort of giving of his wisdom, Zarathustra has changed throughout the narrative. Um, it often has to do with his relationship to the public or to his disciples and um, you know his particular attitude at a given time, but he has to overcome a series of challenges as well, which are not so much physical adversaries or even philosophical puzzles in the way a normal philosopher might say, take on wrestle with challenges, right? But questions of conscience, we might say. Sentiments, feelings that Zarathustra holds, things like dread or hatred, or earlier in the story when he has to overcome his nausea at what he calls his most abysmal thought, which is that, as we mentioned, it has to do with the eternal return, that if we wish for the eternity of all things, then we must 
by that same token, wish for the eternity of the most contemptible aspects of mankind. And so that will be eternal as well. And he overcomes this nauseating thought at man's eternal smallness and pettiness with the vision of the other man, the hope for the future and the faith in life's ability to continue ascending, which justifies, in some sense, all of these eternal defects, meaning that all that is greatest in man shall be stamped with eternity as well, and that the potential of man reaches infinitely above where man finds himself now, whatever that might be. And so it's a faith that the greatness in man will outbalance or overcome the smallness in him. That's what allows Zarathustra to overcome his nausea for all that's, um, you know, uh, common and weak and fragile in mankind. And so it's in this way that the overman redeems mankind by that token. Zarathustra describes it way back at the beginning of the story. Um, he uses the metaphor as the overman being like a great ocean and so great that it could absorb a poisoned river flowing into its waters, right? The overman is so great that all the ways in which we are sick or poisoned now are insignificant in comparison to the greatness of what man could be in the future. Um, and so it's not important that we condemn ourselves as we are now. Man need not be condemned. And so by the end of the story, there is a final such challenge for Zarathustra to overcome. Um, you know, he's had to overcome various things throughout the journey. Um, but the fact that this is the last one, I think, is Nietzsche's way of indicating to us this is the most difficult thing about Zarathustra's new affirmative philosophy. And the most difficult thing to overcome is pity. And so at the very end, Zarathustra must uh, overcome pity. Now, this kind of moral valuation from Nietzsche is one of the most uncomfortable things about him for many people. And it may seem as though Nietzsche is sometimes stubborn or overly zealous about eliminating pity from our moral outlook or from our world picture, because it cuts so deeply against our, uh, our moral intuitions or our conscience in some sense. And since this isn't presented as a rigorous moral argument, at least here in Zarathustra, it's not. Um, it can often be perceived as if Nietzsche's critique of pity is like f sort of frivolous. It's like simply a matter of temperament or preference, right? Or as if in his quest to resurrect the Dionysian spirit in our society or whatever high-minded terms we want to put it in, Nietzsche is allowing himself to become dogmatically opposed to pity. Um, now, of course, as most of you are aware, Nietzsche is perfectly willing to call things such as sympathy, a virtue, or magnanimity, a virtue, and especially generosity. Remember, that's sort of the basis of Zarathustra's story, is actually comes from a, a natural inclination of generosity that Zarathustra has. But uh, Nietzsche's poem, you know, The Genius of the Heart, his prose poem, seems to portray an ideal way of life which is essentially generous, a giving of oneself and their love and wisdom to the world, kindling great things in others. And he writes that even in his, it's, it's in his harshest work condemning uh, the slave morality, genealogy of, of morals, he writes that the master could still well be compassionate and generous. Somebody following the noble morality could still be 
compassionate, out, out of an overflowing of wealth, vitality, goodwill, and so on. But we have to understand that if pity is involved at the basis of any of these erstwhile virtues, that Nietzsche is genuinely opposed to it. And so understand, it's not about the consequence of holding these values. I, I sort of bring up the things that I just did to indicate that there are many people who hold pity to be a very high virtue, and uh, that leads them to perform all sorts of actions uh, that are not... I mean, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? I shouldn't have to spell this out. That plenty of people believe that they have a moral end that they're serving that usually involves helping other people. And it leads them to do all sorts of hideous evils. And the inverse is also true in Nietzsche's view. That people who are essentially pitiless, that doesn't mean that living under their rule was terrible. It just means that if they were generous or merciful, that was a genuine thing that was outflowing from them. It wasn't because they believed they had a um, some sort of duty not to harm other people or anything like that. Quite the opposite, right? Historically speaking. So in any case, um, Nietzsche, what's important to him is what's motivating your actions. And he doesn't think it's simply a matter of preference. But that pity is one of the most harmful psychological forces that exists in mankind. And it's not simply that Nietzsche thinks that like the caricatured view that we'll be being weak or pathetic if we feel feelings of pity for other human beings. I mean, that might be part of it, but rather he believes, for one, that pity is a serious danger to the entire human race, to life itself. He thinks that pity also, like all feelings, is something which can be heightened or deadened. It can be discharged and rooted out, or it can be reinforced and it can become tyrannical over one's whole outlook. And he thinks that pity has been the very basis of our moral system, that it's become synonymous with the good, such that becoming a pitying being, an other-directed person who is solely concerned with the suffering of others, that has become our image of the good person, and that a pity-based morality smothers the possibility of great individuals who are, as we've discussed, Nietzsche's sort of uh, goal in what he thinks humanity should be trying to bring forth, that a pity-based morality smothers these great individuals in the womb, right? <laughs> uh, before they can even come up. Um, and, uh, you know, he writes in Beyond Good and Evil 269, for example, that pity is the destruction of all higher men and all souls of a stranger type. And so um, it's not just talking about uh, sort of, oh, well, the, the in terms of the higher man will be cast down. But he, he genuinely means that anything that's too individualistic or extraordinary, extraordinary is going to be ground down. Well, like we might think of some of the... Um, because Japan is a particularly like anti-individualistic culture. Um, I know this is a broad generalization, which is always problematic, um, blah, blah, blah. But I just remember hearing a couple of Japanese proverbs, right? That the, uh, the tallest nail is the one that's hammered down, or it's the tallest blade of grass is the one that gets cut. So um, that is a danger that Nietzsche is also talking about. It's like the destruction of everything extraordinary in order to make it fit with a certain plan. Now, but to get back to pity, uh, in Nietzsche's view, pity only 
multiplies the suffering of the world fundamentally. He writes this in Beyond Good and Evil, uh, section 30. He sees it almost like an infection, spoiling the happiness of great people. Pity is poisonous to happiness, especially taking joy in oneself and affirming one's own existence, right? Um, resentment gets a lot of attention these days among people, especially public intellectuals who bring up Nietzsche. And it's resentment is certainly a psychological state that Nietzsche greatly condemns. But I would say that pity is in some sense, it's, it's worse and it's, it's bad on a more fundamental level than resentment is. Remember, uh, resentment arises why? We have to ask that question. Those with the master morality oppress and cause harm to their subordinates in society. And among those subordinates, the masses, the common people, therefore a slave morality arises. This is the uh, sort of historical linguistic picture Nietzsche gives in Genealogy of Morality. And what does the slave morality take its central value to be? Pity, reduction of suffering, reduction of harm, the harmless man as the good man. Why is the slave moralist resentful of the master morality in the first place? Because the master morality has no pity. It has no other directedness at all. And thus the slave morality takes being pitiless to be equivalent to being sinful. And so resentment, what I'm trying to establish here flows out of pity when placed as the central value. Now there's also, I mean, you could say, I could see a counter argument just in the interest of intellectual argument that, or uh, intellectual honesty, excuse me, you could maybe say, well, resentment naturally happens when people don't have power uh, to retaliate, respond, or, uh, you know, when power is imposed upon themselves. Um, and that's certainly true. I think uh, resentment, maybe you could say it's sort of a chicken and the egg question, maybe. That would, be, uh, that would be my concession to that point, is maybe they sort of mutually give rise to one another. Um, because maybe you could say resentment gives rise to pity and vice versa. But we'll, we'll leave that question for right now. I think what's important is that you have to understand that pity, far from being something incidental, which Nietzsche opposes, it's the, it forms up a central pillar of the slave revolt and morality, as he calls it, embodied historically in Christianity. So Nietzsche's central opposition in his work is Dionysus versus Christ. And so the central thing which the Dionysian morality is opposed to is Christian pity. And what Nietzsche offers instead is something for which I don't know if we have really a single word that encapsulates it. Perhaps we could say amor fati, we could say maybe innocence. Uh, we could say tr a trusting fatalism. Um, if we want to make it simple, maybe overly simple, we could just simply say joy. That Zarathustra's religion is a religion of joy, and pity is anathema to joy. It inherently removes the individual from his focus on himself and his own happiness and raises this nagging pain, which is externally directed. Pity is inherently universalist in some sense. It's not perspectival. It doesn't allow us to say that things happening to others don't concern me or don't affect me, or that perhaps your suffering over there can't be comparable to mine over here. Um, 
Because in fact, we can't even really comprehend the total suffering of the world. What pity actually takes the form of is imagined suffering of others. So it's a torment of the imagination of the suffering of others, which is happening entirely in our own heads, which then torments people. And Nietzsche argues that if one spent every waking moment reinforcing the feeling of pity, I think he says this in Daybreak maybe, but he says if you're just constantly confronting whatever it is that you find pitiable and giving in to the feeling and going out and actively trying to alleviate that suffering, um, like capitulating to the feeling in that way, that you would inevitably become a melancholic and despondent person. And I think, hmm, I think a lot of people would probably say he's dead wrong on that. Um, so, you know, take that for what you will empirically. Um, even so, pity-based religions always claim to be aimed at human happiness. But uh, Nietzsche sort of points to religions like Christianity that he thinks objectively make people more unhappy. And since we cannot ever actually eliminate the suffering inherent to life, the end result is that we simply end up destroying a certain number of happiness that was possible without it. And so Nietzsche writes in The Gay Science, 338, that behind the religion of pity is a religion of comfortableness, and that at bottom, pity comes from a desire for safety, for comfort, for a society or a way of life that no longer has aspects which are violent, unjust, or uncomfortable for us in any way. And the, the biggest preachers of pity are those with the deepest uh, self-guilt, the deepest feelings of self-recrimination, and who thus preach pity as a perverse form of pleasure-seeking to alleviate their own bad conscience. And so we might make a distinction with Nietzsche's thought experiment about a, just a, a purely pitying individual. I think people who just go out and... There's a lot of examples of people who just immerse their lives in helping people who do take that sort of pleasure and pity, and they don't become melancholy and despondent. But if we think about the preachers of pity, pity as an ideology, right? I think he's very much um, incorrect here. Um, and really Nietzsche's problem with it at the end of the day is that pleasure and pain, and indeed happiness and unhappiness, are twin sisters, as he calls them. And that without one, you can't have the other. And that's his most fundamental critique of pity, that um, it, it's this critique that extends to make up the foundation of why Nietzsche dismisses utilitarianism, that this quest to eliminate suffering is also, by that token, a quest to eliminate happiness. Let me say that again. The quest to eliminate suffering is inherently also a quest to eliminate happiness. That is Nietzsche's, I think, fundamental charge against pity. And so if the Dionysian is a religion for those of us who wish to say we, the strong, the beautiful, and the happy, as the nobility of Greece used to say, according to Nietzsche anyway, then we have to fight against pity. And this religion of pity, which has existed in the form of Christianity, and now that God is dead, still exists, um, possibly even in a more zealous and pathological form all around us. And we would just simply say it's the cosmopolitan secular morality of the modern West, which is still very religious, but um, doesn't recognize its irrational valuations as religious. And because it's so pervasive, even within ourselves, 
we have the inclination to pity, even if we consciously or intellectually fight against it. And I think Nietzsche would argue that, except for those of us who are just built different, which he would certainly affirm the existence of those, pity is a rather normal inclination in that it's been beaten into us by the dominant cultural attitudes of society. And so we cannot understand the idea of Nietzsche saying his philosophy is about Dionysus versus the crucified um, without understanding it. It's yes, it's a war against the historical religion of Christianity, but on a deeper level, this is a war waged within oneself um, in the same way that Muslims talk about the inner jihad, right? So all of us have still have these inclinations to pity and Nietzsche's view is that we should recognize this for being a sick feeling whenever it comes up, that it's a learned form of guilt, guilt over our own happiness. The, in that, what does that come from? It's the feeling that man doesn't deserve happiness. You don't deserve happiness while there's so much suffering in the world. And this inner war with pity is sort of the last struggle of Zarathustra in the novel. Uh, in the novel, thus spoke Zarathustra. And because society has been dominated by pity, this is, is very interesting because Zarathustra, of course, has a very rarefied form of pity, which is probably akin to Nietzsche's own. Uh, society has been dominated by pity, and pity, as we've said, grinds down the higher men. And so Zarathustra paradoxically finds that he himself has pity for the higher man. <laughs> pity for the victims of pity as a moral ideology, right? It's, it's very interesting that Nietzsche uses this because it's, it's almost a ridiculous sort of uh, existential <laughs> problem to have. You know, yeah, I'm having an existential crisis because I rejected pity, but now that I understand how bad pity is, I feel bad for all the potentially great people who are ruined by pity. I mean, it's, uh, it is contradictory, but it is, it's funny. Um, it's just, I think how aware Nietzsche was of his own inner workings and those little... Uh, cognitive dissonances you can have in your thought. So he writes in Beyond Good and Evil uh, 225, quote, Our pity is a higher and more farsighted pity. We see how man makes himself smaller, how you make him smaller. Our pity, do you not comprehend for whom our converse pity is when it resists your pity as the worst of all pamperings and weaknesses? End quote. And so, even with something like pity that Nietzsche wants to wholly condemn, he can't help but using his, uh, his method of forming a true opposition within a single word, right? And so suggests there's a more noble form of pity, uh, perhaps like the form of Zarathustra's pity, right? His pity for the great man instead of for the weak man. Um, you know, perhaps we could also interpret this passage in Beyond Good and Evil. It's a sort of concern uh, or care for um, other souls, but rather than wishing them comfort, right, which is what pity wishes, uh, you know, the usual form of pity is to wish for people to have no suffering. Maybe uh, one wishes, as Nietzsche writes in his notes, for all those who are of any concern to him to know great suffering, great self-doubt, to have hardship and pain and so on. Because in his view, that's a path to greatness, and, um, you know, Nietzsche's understanding, as we've said, hardship is not a hindrance to pleasure. It's 
it's not unrelated to pleasure either. Actually, it's required for pleasure. That's what it means for life to be will to power. Overcoming challenges, which requires pain and sacrifice. That's the very meaning of happiness. It contains the idea of suffering. And so perhaps someone could wish for others to have happiness, knowing full well that a truly happy life involves a considerable amount of pain and tragedy. And that's what Nietzsche actually writes in his notes. But whatever form, uh, you know, we could talk further about his Nietzsche's higher form of pity, Zarathustra, I think, still singles that out as a final obstacle to overcome his own pity. Enough of my pity for the higher man is what Zarathustra declares. And with that, that um, declaration, he heralds the coming of a great noon. And so throughout the story, um, Zarathustra, as we've said, he's a character with an arc. He has liberated himself from really inner states, sentiments, feelings, or beliefs that were weighing him down, making him smaller than he could be otherwise. That's the story of this book, Zarathustra, or his character arc within it. And, I mean, think about the imagery, dancing, being light of foot, leaping from mountaintops. That's the imagery of Nietzsche's philosophy, and the spirit of gravity is the evil force of Zarathustra's parables. All that's heavy and serious and grave and slow and somber. So Zarathustra, one way to look at it is he's casting off all the things that weigh him down, these chains of thought that we impose upon ourselves, or really chains of feeling or sentiment or inclination. It's it's really before thought, right? And so Nietzsche's affirmative philosophy, as many people like to say, is about freedom. But it's not in the sense that a lot of people talk about freedom. I mean, not in the sense a humanist might talk about freedom, or even, really not even in the sense of intellectual freedom. Because what it means to be a free spirit is to be able to overcome these habitual feelings as they arise, not to be dragged away or dragged down by that within you, which is self-abnegating and self-undermining. To live in such a way as to, um, as to actually overcome these things in your actions. Strive to go beyond your limitations as a person, as you exist now that live as a path to the overman, right? And so Zarathustra's meaning invoking the metaphor of noon, we can see it in several places. Uh, it relates to all of this that we've been talking about. The very first aphorism we read in this podcast, how the true world finally became a fable. Nietzsche says that the final step, the abolition of the true world, the, you know, the afterworld, the, uh, the world of spirit, the world beyond, the abolition of the uh, illusory world that goes along with it as well, which is our doubt, uh, you know, our devaluing of the physical world or of the world of our immediate and direct experience. This, that step where those, the true world is no longer something we're chasing after, we're no longer devaluing our own, um, you know, direct experience of our own reality. And, um, that is what he coincides with the time of noon. That's what he correlates to the time of noon, the period of the shortest shadow. You know, noon has a special connotation for Nietzsche because of this point. The brightest dawn can cast the longest shadows, right? Uh, when the sun is sort of coming over the horizon. But when the sun is directly overhead, the shadows almost entirely disappear. 
And so it's like in the pure light of wisdom, without the long shadows of our our illusions and our abstractions, uh, which shadows always necessarily accompany mankind's acquisition of knowledge, right? But so noon is the time when we are within full knowledge and those shadows have all but disappeared. We could also look to the conclusion to the first book of Zarathustra where he says goodbye to his followers. He tells them this line that I love that, quote, the man of knowledge must not only love his enemies, he must also be able to hate his friends, end quote. And uh, I mean, he's saying the best thing for his disciples, his friends, is to depart from him. Having learned all they have, it would be a misstep to make Zarathustra into an infallible guru or to worship him or to live in a, a certain way simply because Zarathustra told us to live that way, right? He tells them, quote, one repays a teacher badly if one remains nothing but a pupil, end quote. We, we talked about this aspect of Zarathustra's teaching just last uh, week when he says to us, here is my way, where's yours? And that when it comes to some sort of universal moral code, some absolute way of life, it doesn't exist for Nietzsche. Life is ever generating, trying to become distinct, different, individual. Power, as it manifests in countless ways, is always aimed at different goals. For the various things of the world, there are always many and mutually exclusive valuations of what is good. And that this is a physiological fact. It's a biological fact, right? The, the good of the hawk versus the good of the little lamb, right? Now, to the extent that Zarathustra offers us still a perspective on what he considers good, we have here in that same passage, the end of book one, quote, Remain faithful to the earth, my brothers, with the power of your virtue. Let your gift-giving love and your knowledge serve the meaning of the earth. Thus, I beg and beseech you, do not let them fly away from earthly things and beat their wings against eternal walls. End quote. So, remain faithful to the earth. What is the meaning of the earth for Zarathustra? He says right out. The meaning of the earth is the overman. So remain faithful to that ideal of the overman. Remain faithful to a value system that vests its good in mankind. Um, not mankind as it is now, but in the increasing strength and future transformations of mankind. And more fundamentally, remain faithful to values which are devoted to life and to this world. Resist the temptation of beating your wings against this eternal world beyond. Um, and what, but what's more here, let your gift giving and your love and your knowledge serve the meaning of the earth, which means the ideal of the overman is served by knowledge and gift giving and love that this, this is the kind of giving we mentioned earlier, where one just sort of overflows naturally, involuntarily, even the way you might think of people doting on people they love, you know, when you give, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, I know like, you know, when there's stereotypes of like when young people are dating and people make all give, you know, buy people dinner and give them gifts and make all sorts of promises just out of lust or whatever. But I'm not necessarily talking about that. Like when you give to someone that you love, um, that's not because you have a feeling of pity for them and want to eliminate their suffering or mitigate their, 
their otherwise uh, terrible existence, right? It's when you love someone, you have an irrational demand to make this person happy. It doesn't come from that sort of dead moral code, which is, um, you know, it's, it's very odd that that's how many people think about human action and think human action should conform to when it describes almost nothing of how when we really do behave in a way that is naturally, um, quote unquote, naturally virtuous, right? It never comes from this, these ideas of pity or things like that. Or, I mean, conceivably, it could come from pity. I don't think people behave as utilitarians naturally. I'll put it like that. But anyway, let's look at how the passage ends. Um, quote, And once again you shall become my friends and the children of a single hope. And then shall I be with you the third time that I may celebrate the great noon with you. And that is the great noon when man stands in the middle of his way between beast and overman and celebrates his way to the evening as his highest hope. For it is the way to a new morning. Then will he who goes under bless himself for being one who goes over and beyond, and the sun of his knowledge will stand at high noon for him. Dead are all gods. Now we want the overman to live. On that great noon, let this be our last will. Thus spoke Zarathustra, end quote. So as we've laid it out here, um, the sun at noon, it's the height of our knowledge. But more importantly, as we mentioned, it's in the middle. And what is in the middle of? The course between man and overman. And when we really understand the overman ideal, what we recognize is that the overman must be infinite. It has to be. In order to serve as the receptacle of all human valuing, of all that we sacrifice for, all that we make oaths in the name of, and the reason and the justification for all the duties we fulfill and all the pain that we endure and all the goals that we chase after. If there were some limit placed on the overman, some limit on the potential for what mankind could be, then the overman could not possibly be the meaning of the earth and redeem and justify the world and elevate the world. The, the overman does so because every great individual is not themselves, quote-unquote, an overman, uh, as some people falsely claim about Nietzsche's uh, philosophy. What you could say is that they're perhaps flashes or approximations, but all of them are still human, which carries with it a set of limitations. And so as long as we're still human... We're all still small and limited in some manner. And the overman is, it's like a flash of something beyond those human limitations. It can only be vaguely sort of prefigured in any living human figure because this is um, the, as I've pointed out before, the replacement for God in Nietzsche's religion. It has to be uh, in omni, right? It has to uh, encompass the all, or else it cannot ever be that replacement. And since the overman is infinitely beyond the human, it's the, it's the ever-receding horizon towards which we march. It's the positive feedback loop, the limitless uh, direction of life ascendancy, however we want to say it. What, so what does it mean then to say that one is in the middle of their course between animal and overman? 
We might recall in Zarathustra's vision uh, from the chapter, The Vision and the Riddle, standing before, it's just sort of a metaphor I want to extend that he uses, he stands before a, a threshold called moment, right? It's like a, it's an archway just on the middle of the path he's traveling in the mountains. And he says this, above it is inscribed the name moment. And an infinite road stretches back, you know, into infinity behind the moment. And an infinite road stretches forward into infinity in front of the moment. And where do the two roads meet? Where do the paths of the in the infinity of the past and the infinity of the future, where do those two paths cross? In the present moment, right? That profound realization that we ourselves are, in this present moment, just such an intersection of all that is past, prehistoric and bestial in mankind, and all that's future. And when one is able to become free and liberated in their state of mind, from the limitations of humanity that have previously bound them. You can, in that moment, finally believe that such a thing is possible, not just for yourself, but perhaps for humanity. And it's a faith that can then be stirred in the future of humankind itself, of, of, of a mankind that's free, totally free and liberated, and a path that leads beyond human frailties. And so I think... That experience is noon. Not a mere intellectual epiphany, but the feeling of freedom. The feeling of being alive. The feeling of being happy in oneself. And the profound joy, which I think must be rare among living things, that we are, we humans possess the capacity to be self-aware of our own happiness. Like to recognize in that moment of life's power that it to to have the realization of what it is and that you're living through it, and being overawed with the way that we're we're seduced to live and to judge and to esteem and to become absorbed and lost in our work in life, in spite of the fact, I mean, like any objective account of the facts of human existence should make us mortified of our own mortality and all that. Although the things we're bringing up before, if you were to imagine to yourself all the suffering of the world, but instead, no, life is so powerful that it seduces us to fall in love with it and lose ourselves in living it and spend ourselves, give ourselves away. Um, and Zarathustra's teaching is to impart a meaning for a supreme form of this experience, a supreme love of life and give us a new metaphor for talking about it. And so the question, I think, arises now, naturally arises, as well it should. Well, what next? What happens now? Uh, I mean, I say this question arises naturally and that it should arise because that's your will to power speaking if you find yourself thinking that, right? Which is to say, a noontide can't be seen as akin to some sort of... Uh, I don't want to make this into an Eastern Enlightenment experience. You know, the point you reach at which there's nothing more to do. I mean, perhaps we could say, if you had a more subtle understanding of some of the, you know, the Enlightenment experiences of Zen and Taoism, there's something that might be somewhat comparable in the story. It's a famous allegory of following the ox, right? There's a 10-step diagram that's rather famous where chasing down Enlightenment is described as akin to hunting down an ox, 
but the steps continue even after the ox is found. The, the ox is supposed to be enlightenment, right? So why would the steps continue after enlightenment's found? Well, the final step is called entering the marketplace, and it depicts the sage return, you know, these, the fully enlightened sage now re-enters the world. Um, the, that comparison might be useful to kind of grasp what I'm talking about, but there's something fundamentally different here for a couple of reasons. Um, for one, we couldn't ever imagine Nietzsche writing out a 10-step program. Uh, and Zarathustra says uh, he does not give us a way to follow. And furthermore, there's no expectation uh, in Nietzsche of this experience being like spontaneous or giving rise to some permanent change in your perspective as there is in these Eastern ideas. Um, for Nietzsche, everything's always changing, right? There's no permanence. For, for the most part, the progress that occurs is going to be gradual and slow, and it might appear spontaneous at times, but that's only because you didn't see the gradual preparation for a seemingly spontaneous event that built up beneath the surface. And so noontide, I think, to put it, we, we need to not attach any of those sort of enlightenment ideas to it. Uh, it's simply a high moment, is how I will describe it. Nothing more. And it's, so it's that high moment of liberation, and you would hope that once one is liberated from all these unhealthy or life-denying, you know, uh, emotional or, you know, thought habits, that you would remain free. But there's no guarantee of that whatsoever. I mean, a lot of whether you're able to remain free from habitual thought patterns is going to have to do with your surroundings and your environment, whether you're able to have solitude of a physical or a mental variety, right? And as people grow older, you know, or they get physically ill or start to deteriorate physically, Nietzsche argues that from this naturally follows sick, old deteriorating uh, valuations of, about life. And it's only really the most extraordinary people who don't fall into those. Um, and so Nietzsche once wrote, it was the duration of high moments that really sets apart great men from others. You know, great people are those who have lots of moments or prolonged moments of that sense of elevated consciousness where the spirit can sort of dance and fly about without these weights of these limitations we impose on ourselves um, or the, um, the limitations rather that we let into our own heads, which are coming in all the time from society, culture, religion, our peer group, family, morality of the masses, the current party line, you know, the, the Overton window of what is an acceptable belief to hold the expert opinions and so on. You know, you think people have this experience. you think of a certain thought or you have a certain feeling and then you have a voice in your head tell you no that you can't think that that's wrong right and so in any case i think to emphasize that this is not about coming to a point of rest or a point of completion and that that's the wrong way to look at it i want to look at a sort of fun chapter from zarathustra called at noon uh, which is a parable about just this very thing. It obviously has to do with the noon theme as well. But uh, I'm just going to go ahead and read the entire passage because it's beautiful. So, at noon, quote, And Zarathustra ran and ran and did not find anybody anymore. And he was alone and found himself again and again. And he enjoyed and quaffed his solitude and thought of good things for hours. 
But around the hour of noon, when the sun stood straight over Zarathustra's head, he came to an old crooked and knotty tree that was embraced and hidden from itself by the rich love of a grapevine, and yellow grapes hung from it in abundance, inviting the wanderer. Then he felt the desire to quench a slight thirst and to break off a grape, but even as he was stretching out his arm to do so, he felt a still greater desire for something else, namely to lie down beside the tree at the perfect noon hour and to sleep. This Zarathustra did, and as soon as he lay on the ground in the stillness and secrecy of the many-hued grass, he forgot his slight thirst and fell asleep. For, as Zarathustra's proverb says, one thing is more necessary than another. Only his eyes remained open, for they did not tire of seeing and praising the tree and the love of the grapevine. Falling asleep, however, Zarathustra spoke thus to his heart, Still, still, did not the world become perfect just now? What is happening to me? As a delicate wind dances unseen on an inlaid sea, light, feather light, thus sleep dances on me. My eyes he does not close, my soul he leaves awake. Light he is, verily, feather light. He persuades me, I know not how. He touches me inwardly with caressing hands. He conquers me. Yes, he conquers me and makes my soul stretch out. How she is becoming long and tired, my strange soul. Did the eve of the seventh day come to her at noon? Has she already roamed happily among good and ripe things too long? She stretches out long, long, longer. She lies still, my strange soul. Too much that is good has she tasted. This golden sadness oppresses her. She makes a wry mouth. Like a ship that has sailed into its stillest cove, now it leans against the earth, tired of the long voyages and the uncertain seas. Is not the earth more faithful? The way such a ship lies close to and nestles to the land, it is enough if a spider spins its thread to it from the land. No stronger ropes are needed now. Like such a tired ship in the stillest cove, I too rest now near the earth, faithful, trusting, waiting, tied to it with the softest threads. O oh, happiness, O oh, happiness, would you sing, O oh, my soul? You are lying in the grass, but this is the secret solemn hour when no shepherd plays his pipe. Refrain, hot noon sleeps in the meadows. Do not sing. Still, the world is perfect. Do not sing, you winged one in the grass, O oh my soul. Do not even whisper. Behold, still, the old noon sleeps. His mouth moves. Is he not just now drinking a drop of happiness? An old brown drop of golden happiness, golden wine? It slips over him. His happiness laughs. Thus laughs a god. Still. O oh, happiness, how little is sufficient for happiness. Thus I spoke once, and seemed clever to myself, but it was a blasphemy. That I have learned now. Clever fools speak better. Precisely the least, the softest, lightest, a lizard's rustling, a breath, a breeze, a moment's glance. 
It is little that makes the best happiness. Still. What happened to me? Listen. Did time perhaps fly away? Do I not fall? Did I not fall? Listen. Into the well of eternity? What is happening to me? Still. I have been stung, alas, in the heart. In the heart. Oh, break, break hard after such happiness, after such a sting. How? Did not the world become perfect just now, round and ripe? Oh, the golden round ring. Where may it fly? Shall I run after it? Quick, still. And here Zarathustra stretched and felt that he was asleep. Up, he said to himself, you sleeper. You noon-napper. Well, get up, old legs. It is time and overtime. Many a good stretch of road still lies ahead of you. Now you have slept out. How long? Half an eternity? Well, up with you now, my old heart. After such a sleep, how long will it take you to wake it off? But then he fell asleep again, and his soul spoke against him and resisted and lay down again. Leave me alone. Still... Did not the world become perfect just now? Oh, the golden round ball. Get up, said Zarathustra, you little thief, you lazy little thief of time. What, still stretching, yawning, sighing, falling into deep wells? Who are you, oh, my soul? At this point he was startled, for a sunbeam fell from the sky onto his face. Oh, heaven over me, he said, sighing, and sat up. You were looking on. You were listening to my strange soul. When will you drink this drop of dew which has fallen upon all earthly things? When will you drink this strange soul? When, well of eternity? Cheerful, dreadful abyss of noon. When will you drink my soul back into yourself? Thus spoke Zarathustra, and he got up from his resting place at the tree as from a strange drunkenness. And behold, the sun still stood straight over his head. But from this, one might justly conclude that Zarathustra had not slept long. End quote. It's a very interesting passage for a number of reasons. For one, the imagery of the, um, the vines embracing the tree, uh, and it's a grapevine, and he wants to reach out pluck a delicious grape. There's a metaphor Nietzsche uses in Beyond Good and Evil for the nobility as being a sort of parasitic vine on the society is like the tree, right? And in this way, it's, it's like Nietzsche is reaching when he's, when he's reaching to pluck off a grape, right? That's his quest to find the higher man, right? Or um, something, something like that. Uh, that's the fruit being born by the grapevine. But um, it's noon, and he slips into a sleep, and he into a midday sort of nap, and he describes his soul in feminine terms with feminine pronouns. And this is a, a thing that I think I will have to talk about with Nietzsche, but it's maybe one of those more esoteric things that I'm not exactly sure when I'll get to it of the masculine and feminine in Nietzsche's uh, philosophy and how the feminine is always sort of used as a metaphor or a symbol for the unconscious side of the self. And Nietzsche 
really feels that the unconscious is uh, the greatest part of the self and the thing driving the self. That which is not, I mean, it's very, to put it maybe in clearer terms, I mean, you have the male god in Christianity who speaks the world into existence with the logos, right? Um, and that there is a very, like, sort of, there's a maleness to uh, the intellectual understanding and construction of the world logically, and there's a femaleness, at least just as metaphors that we see in literature, that's associated with what's unconscious and more feeling-oriented. And because Nietzsche praises that and he feels it within himself, even though he is a misogynist, um, he <laughs> he seems to identify with the feminine in many respects when it comes to like his sort of uh, inner life. And uh, that may be bizarre to some people, but it's it comes through very strongly in this passage. And I think a Jungian would probably have no problem with it because you could just say, well, that is Nietzsche's anima. And because he is uh, consciously writing such a ostensibly pro-masculine philosophy for whatever that might mean, but it would certainly, I think, apply to Nietzsche, Maybe he has this very strong anima that's a counterbalance in his unconscious, and it comes out when he's not being philosophical, when he's being poetic. So a lot of very interesting things here, but I want to zero in on something, and he says that noon is a cheerful and dreadful abyss. Uh, it's quite funny to see Nietzsche use the metaphor of the abyss in this way. Um, I mean, it's a complete poetic contradiction, right? There's a, there's a poet named... Uh, Comte de Lautremont, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, but he said that, uh, quote, the association of two or more apparently alien elements on a plane alien to both is the most potent ignition of poetry, end quote. So I think that's an element of fun in Nietzsche's writing, um, that he's a master of doing this. Um, and it's why his writing is called poetic, because he harnesses these oxymoronic images, which would seem to, by their very nature, be like, because they're contradictory ideas, it's almost antithetical to philosophy, but very much in the spirit of poetry. You know, I'm saying it's antithetical to philosophy, even though um, co contradictions and terms like that appear all throughout philosophy, that at least in the goal in philosophy is apparently supposed to be to clarify things and not make them more vague. But remember what Nietzsche says about poets in contrast. They lie. They deceive us. They use things like uh, artificiality of speech and meter, or in this case, metaphor, to make things more opaque. Um, Nietzsche is paradoxically very open about the fact that he hides things from us could also consider the running theme of the mask and beyond good and evil how Nietzsche writes there he does his best to be hard to understand and so this prose poem of Zarathustra at noon I think is a wonderful example of that that any philosophical analysis one makes uh, will be necessarily subjective um, because it's like poetry and it's one of the reasons why reading and analyzing the Bible produces so many interpretations and Nietzsche has told us that he's consciously aware of this as he writes Zarathustra. And um, so it's very interesting. I mean, one could say, well, there's plenty that is poetic throughout and philosophical throughout. I think why some people might 
take issue with book four of Zarathustra is that throughout all the books of thus book Zarathustra, it almost seems as if things get more and more poetic, you know, more laden with like imagery and symbolism. And then there are more passages like this one that are almost just poems uh, or some that are literally just poems. And if we're to believe Nietzsche, that these are his dithyrams, since many of the poems from book four of Zarathustra are what he calls his Dionysian dithyrams, then we should probably take from this that these poems come out of him spontaneously. That's what he's trying to tell us. Um, that he didn't consciously sit down and try and construct these poems the way that somebody you know writing an iambic pentameter might. That he let his inner Orphic poet sing, so to speak. Just let whatever came out just come out. And the, the book... So book four, it's almost the most lyrical. It has a bunch of wacky and symbolic characters. It has passages like this one. Whereas when you look back at book one, it's it's probably the most succinct and sometimes even has rigorous, what you could call rigorous statements of Nietzschean philosophy at times. But I think the moral here, as we, if there is one, don't get lost in noon, right? It's a sweet moment sweet like honey but don't don't hang on to it just like Zarathustra says don't hang on to your memories and your reasons don't become a barrel full of reasons right don't let your high moments of freedom become a seduction to rest uh, we could remember the metaphor of uh, Armida's garden Nietzsche references this in a passage in the gay science uh, out of the seventh solitude I think it is he's speaking as the wanderer Right? And he says he's encountered many gardens of Armida to seduce him into resting a while. Um, Armida was an enchantress who in uh, Tarquado Tasso, in that story, uh, seduces the questing knight Rinaldo into forgetting himself and resting in her beautiful garden. And I've brought this up a little bit before, but I think this is another... The Garden of Armida is, it points to a weak or sick habitual pattern in Western thought that we can trace back to the Genesis story. Um, well, I shouldn't even say trace back because in a deeper sense, it's not as though the book of Genesis or Christianity is responsible for this tendency. Rather, the Garden of Eden story probably reflects this tendency as existing earlier and being innate in man or arising maybe when the project of civilization began. And that it's this desire to return to the garden, that there was a this notion that there was a pre-civilizational uh, utopian state. Or even if it wasn't utopian, um, we imagine that the reasons why, even if we admit there would be hardship there, right? We imagine that all the reasons why we're unhappy now are due to things that wouldn't exist then, right? I mean, that many people immediately jump to like the writing of Rousseau for talking about this, right? Although it's funny because even people, people like to laugh at Rousseau because of his description of the noble savage and, you know, the idyllic state of nature that, he, as he describes it, seems so ludicrous from like a any kind of hard-nosed biological or anthropological standpoint today. But again, Rousseau didn't invent this idea. 
I mean, like people rarely look at how, I mean, like whether we believe scientifically that man came out of some pre-civilizational utopia or not, we're still always trying to get back to it. <laughs> and so almost everyone across the political spectrum, for example, tends to hold the view that at some point humanity made a misstep. Maybe it was the Industrial Revolution. Maybe it was the British Empire. Or maybe if you're an American, maybe you think it's when we stopped following the Constitution, you know, whenever that might have been <laughs> in your eyes. Maybe if you're in Russia today, it was when the Soviet Union fell. Or maybe conversely, uh, there are Russians today who probably think they went wrong when the Soviet Union was founded. Or maybe it was when we abolished monarchy. Or maybe it was the Protestant Reformation. Or when we parceled out land and called it property. Or maybe it was when go all the way back to when extended kin groups ceased to function as like these primitive confederations and instead unified into hierarchical empires. Or maybe if you're a literalist Christian, it was the moment when Eve took the bite out of the apple, right? So we still hold on to some idea that mankind went wrong somewhere. And that to me points to this underlying psychological tendency. And it inherently contains an element of judging and condemning mankind as it is now. Because if we harbor some desire to go back to some purer, earlier state, or imagine that the goal of the future should be a reversion to some sort of more natural simplicity, it's the same tendency all over again, right? Um, and while this is somewhat of a digression, um, I think this comes out in the passage, right? Um, and because... I think it's very important to reject the Garden of Eden story and keep our focus on the future, as Zarathustra emphasizes, and not condemn the world. And But in the passage, notice that Zarathustra says, wasn't the world perfect just now? And that's a sort of one of those other paradoxes, right? Because that's the beauty and the danger of the noon you know, experience, we might say. If the world's totally innocent and perfect... Um, that itself, is that not a seduction to nihilism? You know, another comparison we might use if we want to be a little friendlier than the term nihilism, um, uh, Zarathustra, I think, sort of is implicitly referencing the obscure life of Epicurus when he talks about how little is need needed to be happy. I mean, Epicurus's philosophy is also a form of return to the garden in some sense. Uh, and while he's a figure that Nietzsche greatly admires, Zarathustra ultimately says it was foolish to think only a little is sufficient for happiness to think in those terms you know it sounded clever once but and this is sort of the seduction i'm talking about he sees the best happiness in the same things epicurus might or even like diogenes might right He's, he says that there's the most sublime happiness in the sunshine a breeze a serene moment when you're in this sort of state of trusting fatalism equanimity whatever you know we want to call it. And yet that serene moment can't be the totality of what we seek for in life. This is Nietzsche's ultimate rejection of this romantic vision of happiness. Because again, happiness is not something you rest in. You have to keep seeking after it. You have to keep struggling and striving. That's, that's the same idea. And so noontide can't be turned into our Garden of Eden, our Nietzschean Garden of Eden. That would defeat the entire purpose. Uh, noontide is a cheerful and dreadful abyss, 
a state devoid of all moral tethers, of all telos for our lives or the world, which means total freedom. Dancing in total freedom at the peak of the mountain, you know, with deadly chasms on either side. That should be terrifying as well as liberating, right? Um, And so, you know, Zarathustra gets his moment of rest under the sun at noon, but it should spur us on to say, up, you sleeper. Time to get a move on, right? So what are we moving on to? It's still still preoccupied with the same question of what's next. Uh, We're going to look at a passage from the gay science, one of my all-time favorites, called Excelsior. It's got an exclamation mark at the end of that. Excelsior. It's aphorism 285. And it's interesting, the first paragraph is placed in quotations, though we have no notion of which character is supposed to be speaking. And then the second paragraph is not in quotations. So uh, make of that what you will, I guess. I don't really have a clue for you. So Excelsior, quote, You will never pray again, never adore again, never rest in endless trust, You do not permit yourself to stop before any ultimate wisdom, ultimate goodness, ultimate power, while unharnessing your thoughts. You have no perpetual guardian and friend for your seven solitudes. You live without a view of mountains with snow on their peaks and fire in their hearts. There is no avenger for you anymore, nor any final improver. There is no longer any reason in what happens. No love in what will happen to you. No resting place is open any longer to your heart, where it only needs to find and no longer to seek. You resist any ultimate peace. You will the eternal recurrence of war and peace. Man of renunciation, all this you wish to renounce? Who will give you the strength for that? Nobody has yet had the strength. There is a lake that one day ceased to permit itself to flow off. It formed a dam where it had hitherto flown off, and ever since, this lake is rising, higher and higher. Perhaps this very renunciation will also lend us the strength needed to bear this renunciation. Perhaps man will rise ever higher as soon as he ceases to flow out into a god. End quote. And so this passage, I think it's it's a wonderful summary of many of the themes I've tried to hit on in my commentary in this talk. And of course, Nietzsche says it better, (laughs) that we can't seek a resting place. And to put it into a fun little rhyme derived from Nietzsche and Heraclitus, life is strife. The Dionysian love of life means loving the eternal recurrence of war and peace. So that doesn't mean there's no peace at all means there's no lasting peace. It's the same thing as when we look at happiness, how it has to be sought. It is found in the pursuit of goals and struggle rather than in acquiring goals. And that's the reason why the return to the garden is nothing but a fable. But I love that this, ha- this passage really hammers home that the, this experience of feeling free or liberated, it's not a sort of bland and easy thing that Nietzsche is talking about. And I love the metaphor so much at the end, the metaphor of the lake. He's here, he's talking about our valuations. We have let the meaning in life, the significance in life, the value in life flow out into a God, into another world, into the world of spirit, which is, after all, only quasi spirit. 
insofar as this world exists within our imagination in an abstract form. But imagine instead what mankind might be capable of if we were able to cease ourselves from flowing off into what is basically nothingness. That we, our vitality would be like a lake rising higher and higher. And he calls this a renunciation, right? It's Zarathustra's enticement to us to remain faithful to the earth, right? Not allowing in the thought of an afterworld or a metaphysical justification. He, he's saying, treat all of those things as vices to overcome, that you have to renounce. These are these habitual thought patterns and these habitual sentiments and matters of conscience and uh, states of mind, whatever we want to call them. We talked earlier about pity, for example. Um, he's saying treat that like a sin that you indulge in against your will and that you have to struggle against in that same way. And um, so what does Nietzsche believe the justification ought to be instead, instead of this other world? What should our faith be grounded in? Uh, again, in humanity, but in humanity as a bridge and not a goal. Something which, like all life, must bring something forth greater than itself. Again, future-oriented. And it's, um, I don't know, I don't think I do any better than just simply citing the image of the lake when I try and <laughs> unpack it like that. I want to look at a couple more passages from The Gay Science. Um, the book ends in such a triumphal way. And these passages now uh, I'm going to read, they're from book five, which is written after Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And so in some way it's proper to read them after covering the end of the Zarathustra saga because the gay science kind of bookends Thus Spoke Zarathustra in that way. But in this passage... Nietzsche is still speaking of the same thing we've been discussing throughout, giving us some sort of enticement to move forward. We free spirits, right? And also describing what he sees are some of the practical realities and challenges that now manifest in our lives. Um, you know, if you've really taken on this Nietzschean affirmative philosophy, uh, it shouldn't be an easy thing. And so this it's another one of my favorite passages. We're doing a lot of my favorites today here at the end of the season. So this is the Gay Science 377 entitled, We Who Are Homeless. And in the title here, we should think back all the way to the second episode of the podcast, the character of the wanderer, right? He's talking about becoming a complete and total wanderer on the face of the earth in the same way Zarathustra describes himself. At home, nowhere, and everywhere, right? And so the passage, uh, it's another long one, but uh, not as long as the, the, noon, the passage at noon. All right, uh, we who are homeless, quote, Among Europeans today, there is no lack of those who are entitled to call themselves homeless in a distinctive and honorable sense. It is to them that I especially commend my secret wisdom and gaia scienza. For their fate is hard. Their hopes are uncertain. It is quite a feat to devise some comfort for them. But what avail? We children of the future, how could we be at home in this today? We feel disfavor for all ideals that might lead one to feel at home in this fragile, broken time of transition. As for its realities, we do not believe that they will last. The ice that still supports people today has become very thin. 
the wind that brings the thaw is blowing. We ourselves who are homeless constitute a force that breaks open ice and other all-too-thin realities. We conserve nothing. Neither do we want to return to any past periods. We are not by any means liberal. We do not work for progress. We do not need to plug up our ears against the sirens who in the marketplace sing of the future, their song about equal rights, a free society, no more masters and servants, has no allure for us. We simply do not consider it desirable that a realm of justice and concord should be established on earth, because it would certainly be the realm of the deepest leveling in chinoiserie. We are delighted with all who love, as we do, danger, war, and adventure, who refuse to compromise, to be captured, reconciled, and castrated, we count ourselves among conquerors. We think about the necessity for new orders, also for a new type of slavery. For every strengthening and enhancement of the human type also involves a new kind of enslavement. Is it not clear that with all this we are bound to feel ill at ease in an age that likes to claim the distinction of being the most humane, the mildest, and the most righteous age that the sun has ever seen? It is bad enough that precisely when we hear these beautiful words, we have the ugliest suspicions. What we find in them is merely an expression and a masquerade of a profound weakening, of weariness, of old age, of declining energies. What can it matter to us what tinsel the sick may use to cover up their weakness? Let them parade it as their virtue. After all, there is no doubt that weakness makes one mild, oh so mild, so righteous, so inoffensive, so humane. The religion of pity, to which one would like to convert us. Oh, we know the hysterical little males and females well enough who today need precisely this religion as a veil and makeup. We are no humanitarians. We should never dare to permit ourselves to speak of our love of humanity. Our kind is not actor enough for that, or not a Saint Simonist enough, not French enough. One really has to be afflicted with a Gallic excess of erotic irritability and enamored impatience to approach, in all honesty, the whole of humanity with one's lust. Humanity. Has there ever been a more hideous old woman among all old women? Unless it were truth, a question for philosophers. No, we do not love humanity. But on the other hand, we are not nearly German enough in the sense in which the word German is constantly being used nowadays, to advocate nationalism and race hatred, and to be able to take pleasure in the national scabies of the heart and blood poisoning that now leads the nations of Europe to delimit and barricade themselves against each other, as if it were a matter of quarantine. For that, we are too open-minded, too malicious, too spoiled, also too well-informed, too traveled, we prefer to live on mountains, apart, untimely, in past or future centuries, merely in order to keep ourselves from experiencing the silent rage to which we know we should be condemned as eyewitnesses of politics that are desolating the German spirit by making it vain, and that is, moreover, petty politics. To keep its own creation from immediately falling apart again, is it not finding it necessary to plant it between two deadly hatreds? 
must it not desire the eternalization of the European system of a lot of petty states? We who are homeless are too manifold and mixed racially in our descent, being modern men, and consequently do not feel tempted to participate in the mendacious racial self-admiration and racial indecency that parades in Germany today as a sign of a German way of thinking that is doubly false and obscene among people of the historical sense. We are, in one word, and let this be our word of honor, good Europeans, the heirs of Europe, the rich, oversupplied, but also overly obligated heirs of thousands of years of European spirit. As such, we have outgrown Christianity and are averse to it, precisely because we have grown out of it, because our ancestors were Christians who, in their Christianity, were uncompromisingly upright. For their faith, they willingly sacrificed possessions and position, blood and fatherland. We do the same. For what? For our belief? For every kind of unbelief? No. You know better than that, friends. The hidden yes in you is stronger than all no's and maybes that afflict you in your age like a disease. And when you have to embark on the sea, you immigrants, you too are compelled to this by a faith. End quote. So again, there's quite a lot here. I shied away from using the term faith last week to describe Nietzsche's affirmative philosophy because Zarathustra specifically, um, he, tra he trashes that word, <laughs> basically calls it a vice. But one of the things I've learned from Nietzsche, something I've brought up, is that he often takes words that have a single meaning and breaks them into two. And so here he's describing a, a, a good faith rather than a bad, contemptible faith. It's our, uh, our hidden yes, right? And he references the greatness of our forebears and sacrificing at the end there, sacrificing possessions, positions, uh, their sacrificing for their lives and for their country. That's what's required to do great things, to live dangerously, um, you know, and to live in such a way to bring forth the overman. So this is necessary for us as well. But he references here how in this wretched modernity with its no's and its maybes, it, it afflicts us like a disease, that we're contaminated with this desire, especially as intellectuals, to always be able to come down on both sides of an issue and be flexible in our moral valuations and respect the beliefs of those with whom we deeply disagree. And there's a virtue in all of this, right? But nonetheless, there's a sense in which if you do not have some definite tenets that you say yes to, then you have nothing. If you don't ultimately find your yes. And Nietzsche implicitly states here, this is inherently based on faith. It's the discovery, you know, like the self-legislation of your values, crafting that straight line, a goal, a demand for reality, a demand that you impose on reality. That is a faith. And Nietzsche says, this new beautiful attitude of yes, that's within you, those are the people to whom I'm writing, the philosophers in the future who are willing to say and do yes in this way in their life and work. But the great challenge is, of course, I mean, how do we stir something like this in our modern age? And we who are, as he puts it, we're racially mixed, modern cosmopolitan men. Um, and Nietzsche seems to celebrate or at least accept this some, somewhat. I mean, he believed himself to be of Polish descent 
which would obviously sort of mean he was mixed Polish and German, although I, I don't think he actually was Polish, unfortunately, for Nietzsche. But uh, he certainly is a pan-European in his outlook. And, um, I mean, I know elsewhere in his writing he really disliked America, but as an American myself, I think his words are relevant to me. Um, you know, uh, Americans are a tapestry of races and cultures at this point in our history, and we're no longer in an age, if indeed we ever were, for America, where a sort of simplistic ethnic nationalism is possible. And so, you know, uh, that's one of the realities that just can help free you from provincial thinking, which is a great opportunity. It's also a great challenge because then we have to find our yes for which we can sacrifice outside of all of these tables of values, which were simply handed down or just simply an artifact of um, who you are is that your identity as given to you by the broader society and culture. Um, and so that is the, the great challenge. And that challenge, I think, remains um, for us today. There's plenty of work to continue to do um, in terms of sussing out these values questions, which I think will be eternal puzzles for mankind to puzzle over. Which, in some sense, in the practical realm, is the domain of politics, and we might notice that this passage is very political. I mean, in some sense, it attacks every uh, political movement of Nietzsche's time, and a lot of them in our own time. So obviously there's the rejection of petty nationalism, pig-headed sort of racial chauvinism, uh, and we know uh, what that would eventually met metastasize into in, uh, in Germany. But here we have Nietzsche criticizing it in its inchoate forms. But he, the things he say, says that would apply to the political spectrum today and that we who are homeless, we don't wish to conserve anything, right? Um, so going against the undermining <laughs> that Nietzsche could be called a conservative, right? Um, he says it right there. He doesn't want to conserve things. There's a, a foolishness about hanging on to dead and dying eras or attempting to resurrect the past, as we've discussed. And furthermore, we're not liberal. He says that outright. He means a big L liberal, liberal Democrat or whatever. And we're not progressives. We don't work for progress. And he says that it's the society without masters and slaves, without commanding and obeying, that's something sought after by you know, the anarchists or the socialists to some extent. That's also a fantasy. He doesn't agree with it either. The topic uh, next season is politics, and we're going to discuss all of these issues a great deal. So I think it's a wonderful uh, way of dovetailing into that at the end of the season is that we sort of established the groundwork and it's like, what next? Well, what next is the practical realities of your life? Um, in terms of philosophy, the closest philosophy gets to that is political philosophy and uh, maybe moral philosophy you could say as well. But And so, yeah, that's what we'll talk about next. We, we might notice the key critique that unites all of these criticisms that he makes, it's that he be basically believes none of these are really possible, that they're, that they're fantastical in some way. Like desirability is sort of a second order issue. Um, I mean, because the people purveying these ideas, they're ignorant willfully or otherwise of their incompatibility with life. And so maybe the result of trying to implement them is undesirable, but it's not as if Nietzsche thinks we could create a completely classless society, that it would just be a bad idea to do so. 
No, he doesn't think that's possible. That's another return to the garden idea again. And you might disagree with this in our current system, although I think Nietzsche has a point. He would say just as much that liberal democracy and equal rights are fantasies, that somehow we can impose a rule of law that is like self-limiting and answerable to the people and managed by these democratic institutions. I mean, in terms of the bigger picture with Nietzsche's worldview, that you could ever transcend this eternally recurring cycle of cultures and, and life itself, is it, that's a fantasy. And that, that you could have eternal longevity for your state is about as ridiculous as immortality for the physical body. The search for a political utopia is sort of like the search for a fountain of youth, right? And so we don't feel that we are at home among any of these modern ideas, among any of the ideals espoused by the many or by the political programs of all these factions, of the common ideas of goodness as being essentially pity or this religion of comfortableness and safety. And he even seems to reject humanism and that he says, we don't even love humanity. But he puts humanity in quotes, he sort of contrasts it with the Germans uh, it's a statement against universalism. And on a broader level, you could say, you could counterbalance that with Zarathustra's statement that he does love mankind, but that what is great in man is that we're a bridge and not a goal, yet again, right? That the kind of humanism which he rejects ultimately just ends up boiling down to bland utilitarianism. Create safety, comfort, reduce suffering for the most people possible. That's what Nietzsche is rejecting here. He doesn't want to preserve or take care of or make comfortable mankind the way it is. Or to make mankind's comfort and safety today into an end. Let's look at a, a final passage. This is the penultimate aphorism of book five of uh, The Gay Science. It's entitled The Great Health. And here Nietzsche, I think, ties together all of these themes we've been playing with about untimeliness, of being set against our own age, of our future goals. Um, you know, once having experienced the freedom that Nietzsche entices us to experience, and this embracing this ideal of eternal transformation, of ever-expanding strength, of endless creation, of new life. Um, this is what we're looking for, eternally out of step with our own time, eternally dissatisfied, never finding that final rest, but always striving forward. It's a cheerful and tragic quest. That's uh, the overall vibe of Nietzsche. And so this is all encapsulated in this passage, uh, number 388, the great, the great Health. Quote, Being new, nameless, hard to understand, we premature births of an as yet unproven future, need for a goal, also a new means, namely a new health, stronger, more seasoned, tougher, more audacious, and gayer than any previous health. Whoever has a soul that craves to have experienced the whole range of values and desiderata to date, and to have sailed around all the coasts of this ideal Mediterranean, Whoever wants to know from the adventures of his own most authentic experience how a discoverer and conqueror of the ideal feels, and also an artist, a saint, a legislator, a sage, 
a scholar, a pious man, a soothsayer, and one who stands divinely apart in the old style, needs one thing above everything else, the great health, that one does not merely have but also acquires continuously, and must acquire because one gives it up again and again, and must give it up. And now, after we have long been on our way in this manner, we Argonauts of the ideal, with more daring perhaps than is prudent, and have suffered shipwreck and damage often enough, and are, to repeat it, healthier than one likes to permit us, dangerously healthy, ever again healthy. It will seem to us as if, as a reward, we now confronted an as yet undiscovered country, whose boundaries nobody has surveyed yet, something beyond all the lands and nooks of the ideal so far, a world so overrich in what is beautiful, strange, questionable, terrible, and divine, that our curiosity as well as our craving to possess it has got beside itself. Alas, nothing will sate us any more. After such vistas, and with a burning hunger in our conscience and science, how could we still be satisfied with present-day man? It may be too bad, but it is inevitable that we find it difficult to remain serious when we look at his worthiest goals and hopes, and perhaps we do not even bother to look anymore. Another ideal runs ahead of us, a strange, tempting, dangerous ideal to which we should not wish to persuade anybody because we do not readily concede the right to it to anyone. The ideal of a spirit who plays naively, that is, not deliberately, but from overflowing power and abundance, with all that was hitherto called holy, good, untouchable, divine, for whom those supreme things that the people naturally accept as their value standards signify danger, decay, debasement, or at least recreation, blindness, and temporary self-oblivion. The ideal of a human, superhuman well-being and benevolence that will often appear inhuman. For example, when it confronts all earthly seriousness so far, as if it were their most incarnate and involuntary parody. And in spite of all this, it is perhaps only with him that great seriousness really begins. That the real question mark is posed for the first time. That the destiny of the soul changes. The hand moves forward. The tragedy begins. End quote. Everyone, I want to conclude this final episode of season two with a love letter to my fans. There's a small, devoted audience for this podcast, small speaking in terms relative to the rest of the podcasts and channels out there on the internet, even relative to other philosophy podcasts, we're pretty small. But I don't tend to think about things that way. I mean, I tend to compare what we're doing here less to what other people are doing now, but to what was possible historically. I think about Nietzsche himself lecturing to five people in some of his classes or the lecture he gave to just one student, you know, von Scheffler, he wrote about his experience. I think about Emerson traveling America. You know, he spoke to crowds of dozens, hundreds, sometimes more than that. 
I, I wonder how many people in the time when La Rochefoucauld was alive read his maxims. And I consider how, in light of all these things, just by the sheer fact of population growth and the widespread availability of, for example, La Rochefoucauld's works, surely more people are reading him today than in any other age, in all likelihood. I mean, I, I feel I'm historically privileged, is what I'm trying to say, to have been able to reach an audience worldwide while I'm still alive and productive, right? <laughs> Not posthumously. And the United States is only a plurality in my listenership. It's still a minority. We have listeners on every continent. Maybe not Antarctica, but you know. And so I find this thrilling to a great degree, and I'm humbled by it, and I thank all of you for it. But beyond just the general audience, there's some of you, uh, the patrons, and the, in addition to them, uh, the people who comment on every video, the people who write to me and ask me questions and, uh, you know, the people who have these very thought provoking and thoughtful criticisms of what I've said, who have listened very carefully, um, or the people who discovered the podcast in the middle of its existence. And then they go back and listen to it methodically going over every episode. Right. And so to all of you, thank you. It really does mean the world to me. And, um, you know, I, I'm so glad I've gotten to share this thing that I love so much with all of you. And I suppose I've had it in me, right. To let all of this flow out of me to overflow, so to speak. And, um, you know, uh, I realize now I was like an overfull lake and it was just begging to get out. So I love all of you, uh, to any and all of you who have come along from the ride or on the ride from the start of it until the end of this uh, second season, uh, more than a year at this point. Uh, I'm proud of you. Thank you. And if you've retained all of this, uh, I'm satisfied to say you have more than a functional understanding of Nietzsche at this point. She probably also, like if you've only listened to the podcast and you haven't read any of the books, you probably do that if you want to claim that status in public, such as in a public debate or something. Um, and in fact, whether you want to do that or not, the podcast is not a substitute for reading Nietzsche's books. So I don't want to give that impression. What's coming up for us now is I'm going to do an interseason project, which I'm excited to try. Um, and that is Birth of Tragedy, a section by section read, where we're going to cover every last bit of the text, tackle the book from start to finish. And I think it'll be fun to start chronologically with the first book by Nietzsche. I don't think that's a great way to dive into Nietzsche if you're coming in with no prior knowledge of him. But if you've familiarized yourself with his works through the show and you've read some of his other books, I think now's the perfect time to double back and take a close look at Birth of Tragedy. And it's a book that really benefits from a close look because it is an imperfect book. And it's early Nietzsche that ideas, seeds are laid there that develop later. And so you, it really benefits from having an understanding of the breadth Nietzsche's philosophy. And it's part of why I haven't done an episode on Dionysus and Apollo as a concept. Um, you know, we've uh, talked about it here and there, but because we're going to cover that in the look at the entire book in depth, and I think it's worth it for the ideas contained therein because I think they need to be looked at closely. So, uh, to a couple more things to conclude, I'm going to read off a list as a thank you of all my current patrons, everyone who's made the show possible. It's not a long list of names, but, uh, you know, it's a thank you to them. After this, uh, 
will then conclude, I'm going to read from the poem at the end of Beyond Good and Evil. Nietzsche calls it The Aftersong, and it's entitled From the High Mountains. Uh, no commentary, it's just my dramatic read of this most beautiful among Nietzsche's conclusions to his books. And so um, without further ado, uh, further ado, excuse me, thank you to all of my patrons. Hypnosyphil, Dennis Shapshe, John Holzenbeck, Anders Kirk, Joseph Abram, Abrahamson, Martin Lee, Jeff George, P. Kunz, Phase Error, Kathy Gerhard, Bedros Yildiz, Colson Lynn, Maycost et al., James, Eric Larson, Mikkel Scow, John Hansen, Dane, Emra Namad, Joshua Bessett, Brian Smith, VEXE, Liz P, William Mark Thompson, Robert Sullivan, Jeffrey Troyer, William Kaiser, Antinomi, and uh, someone else who didn't list their name, but I see you. <laughs> Thank you to all of you very much. Um, you know, here just a little over a year out, I thought it was the perfect time to just sort of publicly thank all of you for helping to make this happen. Okay. Uh, after the after song, I'll be signing off. Bye. Beyond Good and Evil, After Song, From High Mountains, by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Walter Kaufman, read by Keegan Kelson. O noon of life, O time to celebrate, O summer garden, restlessly happy and expectant, standing, watching all day and night, for friends I wait. Where are you, friends? Come, it is time, it's late. The glacier's gray adorned itself for you, today with roses. The brook seeks you, the full of longing rises, the wind, the cloud, into the vaulting blue, to look for you from a dizzy bird's eye view. Higher than mine, no table has been set, who lives so near the stars or dread abysses half as sheer. My realm, like none, is almost infinite, and my sweet honey, who has tasted it? There you are, friends. Alas, the man you sought, you do not find here. You hesitated, amazed. Anger were kinder. I changed so much? A different face and gait? And what I am, for you, friends, am I not? Am I another, self-estranged, from me, did I elude, a wrestler who too oft himself subdued? Straining against his strength too frequently, wounded and stopped by his own victory. I sought where cutting winds are at their worst. I learned to dwell where no one lives, in bleakest polar hell. Unlearned mankind and God, prayer and curse, became a ghost that wanders over glaciers. My ancient friends, alas, you show the shock of love and fear. No, leave, do not be wroth, you can't live here. Here among distant fields of ice and rock, here one must be a hunter, 
chamois-like. A wicked archer I've become. The ends of my bow kiss. Only the strongest bends his bow like this. No arrow strikes like that which my bow sends. Away from here for your own good, my friends. You leave. My heart, no heart has borne worse hunger. Your hopes stayed strong. Don't shut your gates. New friends may come along. Let old ones go. Don't be a memory monger. Once you were young, now you are even younger. What once tied us together, one hope's bond, who reads the signs love once inscribed on it, the pallid lines. To parchment I compare it, that the hand is loath to touch, discolored, dark, and burnt. No longer friends. There is no word for those. It is a wraith that knocks at night and tries to rouse my faith and looks at me and says, once friendship was. O oh, wilted word, once fragrant as the rose. Youth's longing, misconceived inconstancy. Those whom I deemed changed to my kin, the friends of whom I dreamed, have aged and lost our old affinity. One has to change to stay akin to me. O oh, noon of life, our second youthful state, O oh, summer garden, restlessly happy and expectant, standing, looking all day and night, for friends I wait, for new friends. Come, it's time, it's late. The song is over. Longing's dulcet cry died in my mouth. A wizard did it, friend in time of drought. The friend of noon, no, do not ask me who. At noon it was that one turned in to two. Sure of our victory, we celebrate the feast of feasts. Friend Zarathustra came, the guest of guests. The world now laughs. Rent are the drapes of fright. The wedding is at hand of dark and light. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.